when you announce to any Adventist church that we're going to begin study of a book of Daniel, it's like immediately people jump in their cars and they know exactly where they're going. Hop on the highway because we have a very parochial view of Daniel, which means we want to get to the part to where we teach and learn things. And in Adventist churches, we want to immediately go to the freeway and get off on the exit that takes us to the zoo. The zoo beginning in chapter seven, eight, and nine with beasts and animals and, and prophecies and times and where we find uh, origins and meanings. Well, the book of Daniel is so much more than that. And like I said, um, I can look out and I can see that when I announced that we were going with Daniel, I could tell who was already in their cars. And I'm sorry that I'm always the one that has to disappoint those people. Because Daniel needs more than that. Jacques Ducan, in his book, The Secrets of Daniel, the uh, Jewish wisdom and dreams of a Jewish prince in exile, tells us and reminds us that Daniel is a universal book. The languages it's written in prove that almost half of it, all the way up through chapter eight and, and, and uh, just about three ch- uh, verses into chapter eight, it's written in Aramaic. After chapter eight, it's written in Hebrew, which means it's for all of God's people. Because Aramaic was the universal language of the world. Much like English is today, Aramaic was spoken worldwide. The book concerns God's people universally. All through history. Not just ancient Israel. Not just anybody who speaks Hebrew. It plays a major role in the three major world religions. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam have all been greatly influenced by Daniel. He's called the greatest of prophets by Josephus, the ancient uh, Roman historian. The prophet of expectation by Abraham Heschel. The secret of hope by Elie Wiesel. Islam calls him the great judge. Ellen White said that Daniel should receive our special utmost attention. When Jesus took the role, uh, the scroll of Isaiah 61 to announce the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter four, he read a passage concerning the Jubilee, but he doesn't read about the Jubilee from the law in Deuteronomy or the Exodus. He reads about the Jubilee uh, wording directly alluding to Daniel 9, the way that Daniel 9 uses the Jubilee. It's a spiritual book teaching the cosmic importance of prayer. We have a four-part series on prayer coming up in the book of Daniel before we even get to the zoo. It's a book of beauty. It has poetry, prose, rhythm, even musical lyricism, if we could hear it. It's a book of wisdom. uh, Ezekiel calls Daniel a wise man, not a prophet. He calls him a man of wisdom. In the Tanakh, the Jewish order of the Hebrew scriptures, they put Daniel in the wisdom writings. It is not in the prophets. You don't find Daniel in the books of the prophets. You find him in the wisdom writings with Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Job. It's a book of the end. More occurrences of the words meaning the end or the last of days or the end of days occur in Daniel more than any other book. It's a sealed book. At the end, Daniel is told to go his way and seal his words. 
Only books of importance were sealed like this. And finally, it's a book of existence. It means something to us now. It concerns itself with daily common life. It tells us stories of heroic faith that with a little humility, anyone can achieve because Daniel teaches us of a God who exists, a God who is concerned with our lives, a God that we can guarantee is that if he acted in the history of these people nearly 3,000 years ago, we can be guaranteed that he acts in our lives today. He exists. And if he exists, he exists daily. A God who calls us to exist like Daniel, his friends, and even his captors. Calls us to exist and believe that he does and live a life of exile even though our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. We live in this life of exile to live out our faith as Daniel and his friends and the book shows us can be done. So it's this last book, the book of existence, that I wanna start with. See, because that's what we're going to learn. We can learn about him daily. We can learn about him whether we are this high or older. We learn about him in the felts. In the, in the Sabbath school classes, we have felts of the friends and the lion's den. And then also we have pictures and slides that go way back to our childhood as Adventists, way back to where we use little film strips and posters of beasts but somewhere in the middle is the existence of God and his act in history and who he is to us and can be to us. That's the book. So as I stated before, as adults we rush to the zoo, as children we get out the felts and we, si and we sing Dare to Be a Daniel. But between those two is where the truths are learned, where we are to act upon them. If we don't do that, then the prophetic zoo and its interpretations mean nothing. It's empty. It's just something that we can walk around and say, we know something you don't know. And that isn't the life that Daniel lived in exile. It isn't the life that we are to live in exile in these terms. I'll show you how real the book is. How real the book is, is right there in the beginning. Daniel 1.1 says, in the third year of the reign of King Joachim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Joachim of Judah fall into his power as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Daniel begins with a date a date that we can actually see on a calendar. In the third year of King Joachim, we know when that was. It begins with a date. It doesn't happen in too many books. It only happens it twice in, in, in that we know of, but here in Daniel. So immediately Daniel is telling you this is history. This isn't a parable, it's not a poem, it's not an allegory, this is history. In the third year of King Joachim, this happened. Daniel wants us to know that his God is the one who acts in history, the one who's in charge of history. 
Literally, we have a date, and literally, he said, God gave Joachim and the people of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And Nebuchadnezzar takes the vessels of the temple of God, takes them to Babylon, and stores them in the land of Shinar. So immediately, we have a date, we have the reign of a king in Judah, and immediately, we now have Babylon and Jerusalem placed together. And we'll begin to see, Daniel does this on purpose, we'll begin to see the religion of Babylon, the religion of Jerusalem. It will always be side by side. For those of us living in exile, we're citizens of Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem over that is the city of war that has always been the city of war, not the Jerusalem on earth, but the new Jerusalem. Yet we're in exile where? We're in Babylon. That's what makes this so important. Daniel's cluing us in to what the real struggle is here. Nebuchadnezzar takes the vessels and he puts them where? In the land of Shinar. The first time this word appeared and it hasn't appeared since is all the way back in Genesis 11. The whole earth had one language and the same words Genesis 11.1 1 says, and as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. The very next verse is, and everybody spoke the same language and they thought, let's get together and let's build us a tower. The land of Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was built. It's the next time that the word is mentioned is here. The only place that you find these to come together. Bav-el, or the tower that they were building, had a Bav-el at the top, literally meaning the door of God. Now it's speculation, but it's very good speculation. We have all kinds of archeological data, but the ziggurat, the temple that they built with ancient Mesopotamian worship, and we've uncovered dozens and dozens of ziggurats, I believe was patterned after the Tower of Babel. It's a round pyramid and it has a staircase that goes all the way up to the top and the priests of the language were to find the doorway at the very top, the Bav El, the doorway to God. Bav, Bav El, Babylon, this is where it all comes from. Daniel is cluing us in. Nebuchadnezzar is telling Israel that his God is now replacing Israel's God. I find it, I find it very telling that, that I don't know how many uh, millennia or, or centuries after the tower was left abandoned by God when he, when he scattered everybody uh, abroad, that when Nebuchadnezzar settles and he count, conquers the world from the place of Babylon, Shinar is still the place where he puts his temple of worship. That's why he takes the temple, the temples, uh, uh, the uh, Judas temples, vessels, and puts them in there. And he, I guarantee you, he did it with every nation that he conquered. Because Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I didn't just defeat you. I didn't just defeat Joachim. See, if you defeat the people of Israel, then you've also defeated the God of Israel. And he proved it by walking right into the temple, taking all the vessels of worship out of the temple of God, and he put them in the land of Shinar. Why Shinar? 
It's the place where the tower was built. It's still the place where Babylon worships. This is the conflict between Jerusalem and Babylon. Two different religions. Nebuchadnezzar's name literally means son of God. Babylon is the door to heaven. Jesus says he is. But Babylon finds a human way to get to heaven to try to replace God. See, we paint the, well, we'll get there. But we paint the picture of the Tower of Babel that they were just trying to make sure that they would be safe if God did or uh, provided any flood. I don't believe so. I believe that their intent was even more sinister. They wanted to get all the way to heaven so that they could kill God and guarantee that it would never, ever happen again. One of the gods that these ancient Mesopotamians worshiped was Nimrod. And if you look at Nimrod, Nimrod is called this mighty hunter, I believe, because Nimrod was the very first one to look beyond his land, like what he saw, and go and take it. He embodies the spirit. Nimrod could get there. Nimrod could do it. If we built a tower and got Nimrod to heaven, he could get that God who caused the flood, and he could kill him, and we would be okay. This is the difference between the worship of Babylon and the worship in Jerusalem. You'll see it all throughout the book of Daniel, throughout the Bible, throughout history. This is the great controversy. Who will be put in charge? Who's in charge? Is it the human spirit, the human will? The one who gives in to our, our fallen human natures and treats other people accordingly? Is that what's going to win out or will it be the spirit of the lamb that was slain? The one who live out the love of God. The one who lives out the grace of God. Fallen humanity builds a tower to reach heaven to replace God. We allow God to come down to us and to worship him as he walks and talks with us. We're introduced to the crux of Babylon's power. And you'll get sick of this theme, but the book of Daniel is full of this theme. Babylon's power is the attempt for the state to force people to worship. Nebuchadnezzar does it with his power. Babylon is a church and state government. You'll get tired of me saying that, but there is no other way around it. Nebuchadnezzar uses his political and military power to make people worship their new God. And who is their new God? See, the Bible tells us that God comes down. Why did God come down? Because he knew that our nature would never, ever think to reach out to him. We build our way up. We find a way to get there. We'll get there, Lord. But God says, I have heard the cries and the anguish of my people, and I have come down. This is what Daniel will be to teach us. If you continue the narrative in chapter one, it says the king commanded his palace master, Asphanaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility. See, these are young princes. Daniel and his friends are all princes in the royal family. We're not 100% sure, but Daniel might even be next or second to next in line after Joachim. 
If they had stayed in Judah, these guys would have been kings. So these young princes and family and nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Interesting. Really interesting the way that it's worded. Who does Nebuchadnezzar take to put in his service? The best and the brightest. You're not going to take an idiot like me. He's going to take somebody learned. He's going to take the nobility, somebody without defect in form. The language there is very telling, by the way. When you hear of something being without permanent defect and perfect in form and beauty, what do you think of? Well, actually, what they would have thought of. Jesus won't be around for 3,000 years. What would they have thought of? The words of the law and what every priest was supposed to look like. You weren't allowed to have a physical defect and be a priest, remember? And you couldn't bring a sacrifice that had a physical defect in it. Nebuchadnezzar somehow knows this. Nebuchadnezzar somehow, the, the, the uh, worship of Babylon somehow says, it's only the best and the brightest that can get these things done. Nebuchadnezzar is making his own priesthood. That's why he's calling these men to do this. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all from the tribe of Judah. So as I said, pointing to that they were without physical defect, what is he looking for? This is what a Levitical priest was to be. The literature and the language of the Chaldeans were not designed just to better educate. The Chaldeans were priests of Babylonian worship. Everything that they are they to learn. They decipher thousands of cuneiform signs. They're going to learn three languages, Babylonian, Sumerian, and Aramaic. They learn magical techniques, no astro uh, uh, astronomy and maps. By this time, Babylonian astronomers could predict the eclipses, solar and lunar. They want to tell the future, or they want the future to be told with the stars. Yes, today we know this as what? As astrology. It's been around forever. The king wants to change their religion. He wants to change their identity. He wants to change them by making himself be their God. That's what the language of the text is telling us. The word that he uses for assigning, assigning them a daily portion of food, is the exact same word that Jonah uses to say that God appointed or assigned the storm and the great fish to change his history. God appointed, he made it happen. Daniel's using this word to apply it to Nebuchadnezzar, what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do to us. Only the creator can do that. Only God can do that. Nebuchadnezzar is letting them know something. You don't have a God anymore. I'm your God, and you will be my priests. I'll even assign you what you're supposed to eat the king wants to be their creator. He'll give them names. 
In Genesis, God gave the names and appointed Adam to name the animals. These things the king wants to do, only God does. Our name may not mean much to us in the 20th and 21st century. It may have some family history. It may not. Some may be biblical names. It may not. Some people <laughs> name their kids by pulling a name out of a hat. It doesn't mean that much to us as it did back then. Back then, you named your kid what God created your kid to be. Sometimes they didn't even name their babies for three to six months just to see what kind of personality he had, to have an idea of what God called him. Very few times, but God actually, actually told him, you will call him this. You'll name him Eatstock, Sarah, because I want to remind you of the joy that you laughed in my face when I told you you would have this kid. Eatstock means laughter. They named the kid Laughter. Because he brought them nothing but joy. Nebuchadnezzar is giving them a message. These things the king wants to do, only God is supposed to do. This thing that the king would like to do, and apart to the young men, only God is supposed to do. He's giving them a message. He apportioned them meat and wine. Whenever meat and wine are together in the Bible, by the way, they're always together in a cultic sense. They belong together in worship. Look at Deuteronomy, Passover, the burnt offerings, the drink offerings, meat and wine, they only come together in the Bible when you're offering sacrifices to God. Even the portion that's given to him has an aspect of worship about it. Not just the fact that he's making you eat what he's now making you eat because he is your God, your creator, and your sustainer, but also even the food has an aspect of worship to it. So what does Daniel do? Why do, why do we let the kids sing Dare to Be a Daniel? By the way, why do we only leave it in Creator World? That's a great song. Why isn't Dare to Be a Daniel in a hymnal, right? Don't you guys love singing Dare to Be a Daniel? What does Daniel do? He resists. And you may not see it, you may not uh, see it, but Daniel, first of all, is extremely subtle in the way that he resists. One is the way that he records their names. The name that, that Nebuchadnezzar uh, would give them, the way that he recorded it, Master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called who? Abednego. It was even in the way that Daniel reports to you the names that he gave, because the names as Daniel reports to them isn't the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave them. He changes some consonants, he changes some vowels, he changes a couple of letters, and he, rem he renders their Babylonian name meaningless when he reports it to us. Hananiah, uh, his name literally means the grace of God. Uh, to name him Shadrach, we, we think he, he, he uh, actually was named Shada Aku, or the order of Aku. Aku is a huge, big-tier Babylonian god. Okay. Daniel brings it together and calls him Shadrach, and it literally means nothing now. So what is Daniel telling you as he reports these names to us. Mishael is literally who is like God. I've talked about this before. I've talked about how Michael literally means who is like God. Marduk, he thinks it should have been Mushalim Marduk, who is like Aku. 
Daniel brings them both together and calls them Meshach, rendering it absolutely meaningless. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. Abednego should have been Ardu Nabu, the servant of Nego, another big, huge Babylonian god, and they named him Abednego, and when he brings it together, Abed and Nego, it literally means nothing. Daniel means God is my judge. Belshazzar should have been his name. In fact, we will meet the last king of Babylon. His name is Belshazzar. It means may Bel preserve his life. Daniel put the T, the extra consonant in there, literally renders it meaningless. And by the way, Daniel doesn't refer to himself by his Babylonian name. He says, Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. He wasn't called Belteshazzar. This God who's trying to be my God now, he's meaningless in my life. Even the name that he's trying to give me, I'm going to render meaningless. But Daniel said that he wouldn't defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. He asked the palace master not to allow him to defile himself. Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables and eat water and to drink. One of the things that I want you to notice how Daniel will rise in his power until when Babylon falls, he literally is the second in command. I want you to see Daniel's rise from this young Jewish prince in Israel all the way in power. I believe it's because he treated every Babylonian leader with this kind of respect. Please, I humbly ask you. He doesn't demand it. He doesn't get in his face. He doesn't yell. By the way, he knows what he's doing. Remember, Remember the, the, the guy in charge, he'll come back and say, I can't do that. <laughs> if I do that and you guys end up looking sick or skinnier than the other guys, Nebuchadnezzar will have my head. Daniel understands what he's asking him to do. Give us vegetables. Give us what? Give us water. So Daniel's action after uh, messing with the names, his action now is food. Food and worship are associated. You and I know that, Right? Food and worship is associated. It always goes together. But this is a special statement. Give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. The way that he words it, the last time that you saw those words put together that way was back in Genesis when God said that he gave us every seed-bearing plant and vegetables to eat. Daniel is using those very words. You're not my God. My God is the creator. I'm going back to Genesis for my food. And it goes beyond just a preference. It's worship. It's who is in charge. This God who's trying to apportion me his food, make me drink and eat his food, or the God that I worship, who gave me my food, back in the garden. It's not a health issue. It's a religious one. See, we won't get here until uh, probably in chapter 10, so I'm gonna leave you with this. You always have to remember that Daniel's not doing this for his health. Now, is it healthy? But did Daniel have any concept of what health was? No, they did not. He's doing it because he believes this is how you worship. 
It's a choice because of a relationship with God. Notice it's not grape juice, it's not orange juice, it's what? It's water, the original drink, if you will. The water flowed in three different rivers outside the garden and the, and the water uh, came in a mist and was garden. It's the original drink. He's making a statement that I have a creator. I think we've lost that somewhat in our health message. We lost the idea, if we ever did, that we did it for religious reasons. Anybody ever said that I do this because of my religion? It's much more fashionable to say I do it because it's healthy. And that's fine. That's fine. But by the way, I had a health leader tell me once that we got to come up with a different angle because the world has taken health and gone way past us. We're not ahead of the world anymore when it comes to health. You with me? So maybe God could be gently nudging us, saying, I do this because of my religion. I do this because of my worship. Anyway, Daniel's making a statement, remember, and it's not for health. See, in the following verses, Daniel and the boys are healthier. But Daniel says, not because of the vegetables and the water, but because I worship God. See, we would give, we would give, the problem with, with looking at it as health is we'd give the glory to the vegetables and the water, don't we? Daniel doesn't even have any concept that vegetables and water make him healthier. No concept whatsoever. We're healthier because my creator made us healthier than these other guys. By the way, the guy was convinced that if I give you nothing but vegetables and water, you're gonna get sick. And, and literally, the idea is, is they actually got fatter. They didn't lose weight. It says that they looked at them and they were fatter than the others. This is not about the vegetables and the water. God says, my creator did this for me. In verse four, Daniel says they were endowed. Passive. God gave them these things. These four young men. God gave them knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. Aren't we glad about that? Because we all have the old, we'll have the entire exit to the zoo because Daniel could interpret dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. Notice Daniel didn't even go near their Babylonian names when he reported this. In every matter of wisdom, understanding, the king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. And Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And his, he goes continually, he began with a date and he ends with a what? He ends with a date. Is this an allegory? This isn't a parable. This is real. This is history. This is the God that we worship. The one that will enter our history and become part of our story that he would walk and talk with us, that the word would become flesh and walk among us, that he's present. 
that he exists. God gives, he does all this in the midst of their exile. The temple's destroyed, the land is taken, the, the, the covenant is destroyed that was made with Abraham. Remember the, the, the covenant was the land and the descendants. He destroyed the land, destroyed the temple. All that is gone. You know why? Because it was in God's way. They were worshiping the temple itself. They were worshiping the the sacrifices itself. They were worshiping the fact that they still had the land. God said, now that that's all taken away, he now shows up. There's a verse in Hosea that actually says, when I take away their temple and their sacrifices, they then will begin to worship me. God shows up in their exile. How do we know that God is present in their exile? Is that he's present in Daniel. So every time that we see Daniel being Daniel in here, it's because God is with his people even in their exile. And he's telling them, it's gonna get crazy, guys. There's a furnace coming. There's lions coming. Nebuchadnezzar's gonna get crazier than he ever has. It's all coming. It's all gonna land on you. But I want you to know that I'm here. I'm with you even in your exile. All the way to King Cyrus, by the way. King Cyrus was the very, uh, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. Who does he go to? He doesn't go to Daniel, he doesn't go to Jeremiah. He goes to who? He goes to the king. He's actually talking to a pagan king. He's present with them. He's speaking to Cyrus himself. The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so they sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and declared in a written edict, thus says the King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go. Seventy years as Jeremiah predicted. By the way, that's why Daniel's so sick. Jeremiah said, it's only gonna last for 70 years, don't worry about it. Daniel gets the interpretation of a thousand, uh, uh, you know, 1,844 days, 1,260 days. He gets all these thousands of years. It makes him sick. Because he thinks that it literally applied to the kingdom of Babylon. And Babylon's reign only lasted 70, as Jeremiah reported. And this Mede, or this Persian, not a Mede, the the king that will put Daniel in the lion's den will actually be a Mede, but the Persians were more in control at the beginning, is Cyrus. Cyrus says, just as the Lord has told me, go home. I built you this. The Lord says of Lord to, the, the, thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. By the way, that word anointed, guess what he just called Cyrus, this pagan king. He just called him Mashiach, the Messiah. Why? Because he's delivering his people. That's what Messiahs do. Doesn't matter that he's Persian. Doesn't matter that he was pagan. He's in charge. And if he's in charge to let my people go, I will anoint him to let my people go. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, Cyrus, 
whose right hand I've grasped, to subdue nations before him, strip kings of their robes, to open doors before him, and the gates shall not be closed. And it goes on. I'll go before you. I'll level the mountains. I'll break in pieces doors of bronze. I'll cut through bars of iron. I'll give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places so that you will know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who is called by your name. What's amazing to me is that we think that he's speaking to Isaiah. He's not speaking to Isaiah. He's speaking to Cyrus. He has a relationship, God does, with this pagan king. In form light, down in verse seven of of verse 45, I form light and create darkness. I make wheel and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the skies rain down righteousness. Let the earth open up that salvation may spring up. Let it cause righteousness to sprout up also. I, the Lord, have created it. What's amazing is that he's speaking to Isaiah before the exile ever happens and he wants the exiles to know that this is coming. He didn't want them to spend one minute under captivity with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, as horrible and nasty as it's gonna get. By the way, there are rulers that are gonna try to pull off a holocaust while they're there. There are rulers that actually they will do an edict that every Jew be killed. This is gonna get nuts. But before it ever happens, before Babylon has one minute of control, Isaiah speaks 200 years before to let them know what's going to happen. It's gonna get nasty, but I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you home. I made the earth and created humankind upon it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all the host. I've aroused Cyrus in righteousness. And I'll make all his path straight. And I almost wish he would have said, but he'll build my city, not his, and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. It's what the message to the end time is supposed to be. We got good news for the exiles. We're all exiled on this planet. Those who who claim to worship God, those who don't claim to worship God, those who speak Aramaic in the language of the world, those who live in Babylon and play by Babylon's rules, and those who profess to be God's people, who are actually playing by Babylon's rules, but we need to be straightened out. So we get hauled into exile in Babylon to be able to prove the difference between the two. To have this message right here. It may happen with a particular ruler, it may not. But God says, I'm the creator and I will set you free. Daniel is our, as with Ezekiel and with Isaiah and with Jeremiah, they they are our letter to the exiles. Daniel belongs to us. It'll refer to and be rooted in the history of this exile so many years ago. But it opens up the door. It's the key to understanding Revelation, which, by the way, is our Daniel. Revelation is our letter to the exiles. 
Judah got Daniel, we get John. Babylonian is a system. It's an old, new, slash, new, old way of worship. It's mixed with force and fear. Daniel will be the first one to tell that there will be a false church that tries to make people worship. The church will have two manifestations, an old world and a new world. But it'll be the exact same. They'll both be worshiping the dragon. They'll both be using force and fear. And then the true church has a lamb that was slain sitting on the throne. They'll use love and grace and turning the other cheek. And we'll show them the difference between Babylon and Jerusalem. Dreams and visions that God himself will reveal to Daniel in the midst of this. He's in the mix, not necessarily willing or controlling from a distant throne, but he's come down and he's in the mix. He's in our history. He entered our history. He becomes our history. His story is our story. End time people should be more than somebody who just walks around saying, I figured out Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. I know something you don't know. We're more than that. We should be more than, hey, we have a lifestyle. I live longer than you do. If that's what you're looking for this time through the book of Daniel, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because living in the end time is more than that. Amen? End time people should be more than that. Did anybody notice that this week's scripture reading was the same as last week's scripture reading? I thought he'd go up there and he'd go, man, Pastor Greg, he messed up again. He didn't change the slide. But I added one verse. And that last verse, that last verse was that all of these things will happen because uh, they'll keep the commandments of God and they'll have the testimony of Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. And I'll tell you, the spirit of prophecy is one simple thing. It's not a particular group of writings. It's not a particular prophet. It's not a particular group of books. The spirit of prophecy is God's willingness to actually exist in his people, to actually reach out and touch somebody who will walk with him and talk with him. So when we read of prophets of new and of old and we see the spirit of prophecy, it is old, it is not new. It's God willing to come down, willing to be in the mix. Unfortunately, in our history, there's been only a handful of men and women that have been able to do this. And it has to be a spiritual gift only given to a particular group of people. But we are supposed to rejoice whether we have the gift or not by looking and saying, look, God is with us. And he's always been willing to be. So we're gonna spend our time from the felts to the zoo and everything in between. From the beginning and to the end of our exile. Because when we get to the end of chapter nine, we'll be shown when the end of our exile will be. So welcome to the book of Daniel. And thank you for allowing me to kind of lead us down this road. But we'll go together. And don't worry, the exit to the zoo is coming.
But we got a little bit to go before we get there.